Hey, and welcome to Bread. We're an open-minded, spirit-filled, non-denominational church meeting in Los Angeles. This talk is from a current series on the book of Revelation that we've titled, The End of Fear. We hope it serves you well. I don't know if you know that we're in the middle of a series on the book of Revelation. I'm very sorry if you didn't, but it is what we're doing. Um, this wonderful book that is dense and epic in its precise prediction of the end times in our life today. Yes? No? No? That's not what it is, as we've been looking at. Um, it's not what it is at all. Um, so this is the third, the third uh, talk in this mini-series um, of this book that has been very widely mistaught, which is why it's exciting to look at it now. I do wonder... Um, if we were to go around the room, who would have the best story of um, what they've heard or been taught about what this book means? I'll go first. Um, I developed as a child a pretty chronic fear, a sort of, I guess a sort of separation anxiety, which started, I think, around the age of seven when I was on a sleepover because my friend's dad told me about the rapture. And in my little seven-year-old brain, as I lay awake that night, what occurred to me was that I'm pretty sure whatever was going to happen to my mum in the rapture, whether she was going to get included or not, I, it would be the same for me. So what I definitely needed to happen was just to be with her when it happened. And I was then terrified of ever being apart from her, specifically because of the rapture. Um, so I didn't go, I got picked up from, I can't even tell you how many sleepovers, because I would be lying there going, is it happening now, is it happening now? And I would also just lie in my bed sometimes, just going, is she still there? Mum? Yep, cool, fine. Um, not alone in that, I am quite sure. Um, but because it's been, it's been very, very widely mistaught. Um, as Ed mentioned, has gone through. No mention of the rapture in this book, nor of the Antichrist. Nor is it, for the record, in any way, shape, or form a roadmap of end times, despite what a lot of us have been taught. There is a brilliant book on the book of Revelation by Eugene Peterson, who's the guy that wrote the message translation of the Bible, um, called Reversed Thunder. And that is one of a few that we could recommend if you are interested in getting into this uh, more deeper than the time that we have for this mini-series allows, because we are skipping over quite a large part of it, because it's just very, very dense. Um, so he writes of this book, I think, I think just quoting him is better than anywhere I can summarize it. You do not read Revelation to get anything new about the life of Jesus, just a different, more imaginative way. Revelation is not for anyone who would suppress a fairy tale because they're brutal and fill children's minds with material for nightmares, nor for those who'd bowdlerize Chaucer because his book is too difficult as it stands. It is not for the skim readers, and it is not for the literalists. He also points out that of the 404 verses of the book of Revelation, there are 518 references to earlier scripture. No one has any business reading the last book who has not read and understood the previous 65. So it's a book that is adding nothing new. But it is, like most of the rest of the Bible, a book about Jesus and his church albeit told via some bonkers symbols of seals and scrolls and lampstands and plagues and monsters. And it is of enormous help for us to understand that a lot of the symbolism that is just totally crackers to us had very specific meaning to ancient readers in terms of animals, numbers, 
and colours, some of which we will look at today. Revelation is a story written in the format of a Greco-Roman play to the new baby church about good and evil and how we are to respond to it. Written by John of Patmos, who is a theologian poet, making fierce and deliberate political commentary about the reality of the ch that the church was living in. And last week, Ed left off at the end of chapter five, having covered um, this glorious vision that John paints of what worship in heaven looks like. And I am going from chapter 12 now, which is obviously skipping over quite a large part of the drama. But to summarize it very simply, in the interim, the whole plot has been around this question of who is worthy to execute God's redemptive plan. Spoiler alert, it's Jesus. Um, but that's what, that's, that's the, that whole section of lampstands and plagues, if you've ever looked into it, that's what that all is about. Who is worthy to redeem the world? Jesus is. There's this sort of whole, actually, farcical dynamic that's set up in his writing about you thinking it's going to be the lion, but actually it's the lamb, and we'll, we'll get back to that in a minute. Um, but as I said, we're picking it up this morning, at the beginning of chapter 12. A great sign appeared in heaven. A woman clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet, and a crown of 12 stars on her head. She was pregnant and cried out in pain as she was about to give birth. Any idea who the woman is? 12 stars? Anyone? Very good. Very good. Very good. She's Israel. She's the people of God. She's about to give birth. Then another sign appeared in heaven. An enormous red dragon with seven heads and ten horns and seven crowns on its heads. Its tail swept a third of the stars out of the sky and flung them to the earth. The dragon stood in front of the woman who was about to give birth so that it might devour her child the moment it was born. She gave birth to a son, a male child, who will rule all the nations with an iron scepter, which is a direct uh, reference to Psalm 2. Her child was snatched up to heaven to God and to his throne. So Jesus is back in heaven. This is the scene that he set. The people of God slash the woman fled into the wilderness to a place prepared for her by God where she might be taken care of for 1260 days. In case you were wondering, yes, end time obsessives date back to the 13th century and yes, a massive bunch of them were convinced Christ was coming back in the year 1260. We won't go into enormous detail on the numerology at this point because of um, time, but um, the 1260 days is a, is a wilderness reference um, echoing Daniel's prophecy about a, a similar duration. And we can just take that period of time to mean a finite period of time, so it isn't going to last forever, but it also one that really includes a sense of God's uh, provision and ultimate plan. So that's what that means. And I'm skipping past a lot of more cosmic drama between uh, Angel Michael and the dragon, uh, which Michael wins, and the dragon is banished from heaven back to earth. Verse 13. When the dragon saw that he had been hurled to earth, he pursued the woman who had given birth. Then from his mouth the serpent spewed water like a river to overtake the woman and sweep her away in the torrent. But the earth helped the woman by opening its mouth and swallowing the river, uh, that the dragon had spewed out of its mouth. Um, which is just a little tiny side note on that, that in this story of good and evil, the earth is on God's side, which I quite like. 
as a note, creation being good. Then the dragon was enraged at the woman and went off to wage war against the rest of her offspring, those who keep God's commands and hold fast their testimony about Jesus. So John is painting here a picture of this cosmic chase of evil coming after the people of God, a dragon who remains on earth opposed to the faithful. All right, hold on to your pews. We're getting to chapter 13. It's getting a bit weird. The dragon stood on the shore of the sea, and I saw a beast coming out of the sea. It had ten horns and seven heads with ten crowns on its horns, and on each head a blasphemous name. The beast I saw resembled a leopard, but had feet like those of a bear and a mouth like that of a lion. Try not to get too distracted by what a leopardy sea creature with bare feet would be doing in the sea and how it would swim or breathe. The sea is a source of evil chaos in Hebrew thinking, and this is all Daniel again a terrifying but specific amalgamation of four different monsters of four different kingdoms written hundreds of years earlier. Definitely don't try to make art out of this creature because it's got Napoleon Dynamite written all over it. The dragon gave the beast his power and his throne and great authority. One of the heads of the beast seemed to have a fatal wound, but the fatal wound had been healed. The whole world was filled with wonder and followed the beast. So what is the beast? Just for fun, I had a Google of that this week. The internet of Christianity is a scary place. You can literally make the beast be anything you want to with some stretchy maths and some old maps. Um, I've heard science is the beast. Women's empowerment is definitely the beast. Islam is the beast. Any and all democratic presidents are definitely the beast. The vaccine is obviously the beast. The beast of 5G was a special one. Um, of all that is contentious in biblical scholarship, and believe you me, pretty much everything is contentious in biblical scholarship, this one is pretty uncontested in serious scholarship circles. That's how clearly this metaphor is rooted in Hebrew scripture and what, as a matter of historical record, was happening in the region at the time. Without any doubt, the beast of the sea was Rome. Rome and all its power, all its might, all its promise and its splendor and its advancement. The repeated reference uh, to the wound on the head uh, that was, had appeared fatal and then wasn't fatal was uh, what the empire had suffered when uh, Emperor Nero had killed himself about 30 years before this because it had looked like the potential demise of, the, of Rome's tyrannical rule, uh, but that had been healed and Rome had marched on. Verse 4. People worshipped the dragon because he had given authority to the beast, and they also worshipped the beast and asked, who is like the beast? Who can wage war against it? In the first century, in this region, to the readers, readers of John of Patmos's epic play, there was absolutely no confusion about the beast being Rome. The dark, blasphemous power of the pagan empire straddling the earth, crushing everything in its path. Who can wage war against it? 
absolutely nobody could. Verse 11. Then I saw a second beast coming out of the earth. It had two horns like a lamb, but it spoke like a dragon. It exercised all authority and its, uh, of the first beast on its behalf and made the earth and its inhabitants worship the first beast, whose fatal wound had been healed. It performed great signs, even causing fire to come down from heaven to the earth in full view of the people. Because of the signs, it was given power to perform on behalf of the first beast. It deceived the inhabitants of the earth. And then to verse 15, the second beast was given power to give breath to the image of the first beast so that the image could speak and cause all who refused to worship the image to be killed. The second beast is local power. Local governments, local elites who had province by province given breath to the beast of Rome. It was local rulers who determined um, how all this went for the people across the region, who were responsible for adopting and enforcing Roman culture. Uh, Roman culture which not just attributed political power to, Ro to the empire, but also sacred power to it too. An imperial cult replacing and displacing existing religious belief. And here are some of its core tenets. The gods have chosen Rome to manifest their presence and rule on earth. Rome and its emperor are therefore agents of the gods' rule, will, salvation, and presence among human beings, and deserve our reverence and sometimes worship. The prosperity that Rome enjoys reveals God's blessing, and it also justifies any violent means necessary to maintain it. This imperial age is the long-awaited golden age, the thing that all of humanity has been waiting for. I wonder if any of that sounds at all familiar to us. This imperial cult, anthropomorphized by these beasts, was now spreading across Asia Minor. In fact, all seven cities um, that John had addressed this letter to at the start had recently erected some form of imperial temple. Temples that weren't just significant for spiritual practices, but also um, for governmental and commercial practices as well. Therefore, the Christians that John has written this letter, this play, this epic story to, were having to ask themselves should we participate in social activities that involve emperor worship? Should we acknowledge the sovereignty of the emperor just to get by? Could it be a gray area if we maybe kind of skirt around all that in the name of sustaining the church? How should we, the church, deal with this imperial cult? And what is quite significant for us, actually, is that a generation ago, so under Nero, 30 years before this, there had been tremendous persecution. So, so saying that you were a Christian, professing that you followed Christ, likely would have got you killed, as Peter and Paul found out personally. Nero hated this new Jesus-following Jewish thing, and he'd burnt their temple, and he'd murdered swathes of them. In fact, fun fact, the Mark of the Beast 666 thing, heard of that one? That comes a few verses later. We're not going to go that far today. But in numerology formula, well known at the time, it spells out the name Nero Caesar, written in Hebrew characters. And 666 
is written uh, to oppose 777, which is a parody of the number of perfection. It's just, it's a kind of joke, it's a play on words, play on numbers. Jesus is the real thing. Nero was the dangerous, blasphemous copy. However, this is a bit later. We're now under the reign, uh, the reign of Emperor Domitian, the new guy, and the consequence of not worshipping the first beast, as persuaded by the second beast, wasn't persecution. Not widely, not broadly anyway. There, was, there were instances of it. This had all mostly subsided since Nero had died. The issue for John, as he's writing this epic play, is that the Christians were starting to feel at home in the empire, belonging to the empire, with all of its empire thinking. This whole story is a warning to them about forgetting who it is we worship. The beasts in this story aren't persecutors at all, you will notice. They don't kill or destroy or exile the inhabitants of the earth. They deceive them. This story is about evil, dragon and sea monster and lamb resembling earth beast. This ghastly parody of the unholy trinity, antithesizing Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and how Father, Son, and Holy Spirit love and share power, antithesizing that, the way that they speak. These monsters on earth deceive. Their work here is to deceive us just like the snake did. Evil, as it is displayed to us here in Revelation, is totally consistent with the whole story of the Bible, absolutely consistent with Genesis, where God's econ, mankind made in his image, becomes cracked, poisoned with desire to dominate and self-deify. Poisoned by the desire to eat the fruit and be like God. This is the story of us individually, and this is the story of collective humanity. Ever since the wheels have been rolling on human civilization, this is what we have been doing. Conquering, enslaving, and dominating, which are all terrible things. But it's a whole other kind of terrible when we claim that we're doing this in God's will. Um, we're going to start a video now. It's not that beautiful. Um, it, it starts actually at 3000 BC, but it just gets, it just hots up around this era. So that's when I played it. This is a history of empire. Sometimes I think we think these are quite unusual things. It's just going to play behind me as I keep talking. So don't let it distract you too much. The only point of it is just to just show you, it's going to play for about five minutes, uh, just what we've always done as mankind. America's not in it for a while because you didn't get on board with the empire thing till a bit later. But don't worry about it. Your feature. Not left out. Um, yeah. I hope that wasn't a mistake. I hope now I haven't lost you for the rest of the talk because you're just going to be watching that. The only point you need to take away is just how pervasive this desire to dominate is. Ponder on the fact that each one of these growing colors has achieved growth by sword, by military might, by conquering and dominating, and in most cases, claiming God's favor. It's not unilluminating, is it, to zoom out from our time and place and see that mankind has been doing this since the very beginning. That mankind has been going to incredible lengths to convince itself that God's ways are our ways, that he's on our side, 
Um, as you may be aware of, if you've been coming here for a while, we've been doing these table talk discussions on Zoom, um, discussions on race with an organization um, called uh, Fellowship Monrovia, who are just down the road, um, who are very experienced and brilliant in facilitating this conversation. This last week, we watched a lecture by a brilliant woman uh, named Joy DeGruy on slavery and the role of cognitive dissonance in how European Christians not just a few of them remember, this was widespread ideological belief systems spanning centuries, how those Christians made their peace with what they were doing, which is something that, that stops us from time to time, isn't it? How did this happen? This gruesome, brutal reality of what it looked like, which we, which we went through in some detail, just reminding ourselves again, utterly horrifying. Um, and then we were also shown these scientific journals from the time, um, specifically about African physiologies, uh, doctors recording that, they, that Africans don't need sleep, they don't need proper nutrition, they don't actually feel pain. And obviously, you know, constitutional governmental documents uh, that we're, I'm sure we're all aware of that Africans were classified as not fully human. That's how white people made it possible to listen to the beast deceptions. This is okay because they're not like us, they're not fully human. We're God's chosen ones, God's on our side. And I know that we want to distance ourselves from that. I know that, at least I believe it to be true, that we are broadly more aware of what happened, more able to look at what happened, and I strongly believe it is important that we continue to do that because the legacy of this thing is nowhere near done I think we could all agree I know that we want to distance ourselves from it though that we want to believe that we would never be capable of doing anything like that but the Bible's account of evil and the history of the world would suggest otherwise maybe we would not fall for that specific beastly deception but we can't really believe that we're immune to it, can we? Before I say anything else about the obvious links between the Roman imperial cult and the citizenship of 21st century America, I need to acknowledge that I know how this sounds because I am not American. I live here, I'm raising my children here, my home is here, um, we're building this church here, and I am increasingly, I believe, culturally indoctrinated into life here, I'm changing my vocab more day by day. But I'm not American. And so I know how this sounds or can feel. Um, it, it makes me think of when I lived in London, uh, probably about a decade ago, I had a very good friend who, had, who I became very good friends with. Anyway, she'd moved over, she'd got married, she was American, she'd moved over to London, and I really enjoyed time with her. She was great fun, um, very fast sense of humor, um, with lots of mutual interests. I really, really didn't like it when she complained about the British, which was weird because um, I didn't even particularly identify with being British that time because I was raised in the north of England, which sees itself as something else completely. Um, and I also then, most of my adolescence was in Asia, so I myself felt like an outsider in a lot of British culture. But when she talked smack about it, it was just like, shut up, Missy, why don't you just go home? Her name was Missy, that's not like a, a word I was just um, 
Go home, Missy, if it's so great there. You know, because there are things to complain about. Like, London's beautiful, but we do all complain. We all really have a hard time being positive about anything, and the weather is atrocious. But it's that same thing, right? Like, when your good friend or, like, someone you're dating um, talks smack about your family. Like, I can say whatever I want about my sisters, but if you say a single thing about my sisters, I will smack you. I won't. I would never do that. Um... So I, I, do, I do understand um, how this may feel because of just of my accent um, and the fact that I'm not from here. So I thought maybe I could just start as we go into kind of some more specific stuff about empire thinking uh, that I would start with the British Empire. It might help you just put you all at ease. Um, it's going to spread across the map in a peachy pink. Oh, it's already here. Oh, you missed it. Ah. Oh. I missed it. You might not have missed it. You probably weren't listening to all of the messy stuff because you were watching the British Empire. Um, this is a quote from the Bishop of Calcutta in about 1850. And whither can the fainting eye of human misery turn to this great Protestant empire which God appears to have aggrandized with the design of employing her as herald of mercy to mankind? Herald of Mercy. There, for sure, were a number, number of infrastructural and medical and uh, other improvements and advancements. I mean, it'd, it'd be hard to say that you couldn't include some of that stuff in the legacy of the British Empire across the region that it colonized. But I am pretty sure it would be the man-made famine, the slave trading, the ethnic cleansing, the grave political, psychological, and economic harm still imprinted on the peoples where they went that they heard heralded. Made all the more uncomfortable because of this belief that it was in God's name that they were doing it. The British rulers absolutely believed that they were divinely ordained to rescue the indigenous. The dragon and his deceptive beasts eternally weaving lies to dominate and to self-deify. And I am sure that we could have a rich and full debate on whether America fulfills any of these hallmarks of empire by strict definition standards. Pablo Richard is a Chilean theologian and revered revelation scholar who makes a pretty convincing case for what Central America has experienced under the might of US foreign policy in the last century. And I think we've just all seen enough flags hung in churches. The sacred flag thing is a real thing just to an outsider. Uh, it's a thing. I'm sure that we've all heard presidents quote scripture and pastors demand that following Jesus must look like the politics of a particular party. I'm not sure that we would have a hugely interesting debate in this room if we were to talk about whether or not love of country and love of gospel have become intertwined because I think we could probably all agree that they have. Especially if we look back to the tenets of the imperial cult just think about substituting Rome for America, if I remind you of those. God has chosen Rome to manifest his presence and rule on earth. Rome is therefore agents of God's will, salvation, and presence among human beings and deserves reverence. Uh, God's blessing on Rome justifies any violent means necessary. It's Roman age is the long-awaited golden age, the thing that humanity has been waiting for. I think we have heard that sort of language. Uh, <laughs> I sat quite open-mouthed 
uh, a stop sign for a while behind a big um, like moving truck thing that was white but filthy. And somebody had um, climbed up onto it, the whole back, like written in really large writing. Like they'd gone to some time and trouble, I would say. Um, and filth, hand filth, to write. I uh, just want to make sure I get it right. God bless America and nowhere else. It's just, babe, do you need a cuddle? Like, what has happened? Uh, like, I, just, I mean, it just, it's a thing, isn't it? Um, my sense is most of us are already on the page about that and, and whether God answers that prayer, unless you are sitting there thinking, shut up. British lady, America is God's great original plan for the whole world, and this book is about Christ riding in on a hammer to vindicate America the free. I, mean, I don't even know. We can disagree to disagree if that's what you think, and uh, still agree that Jesus loves us both. I suppose the reason for that video isn't really in this context here today, so that we can all sit here and go, phew. So glad we're not like that anymore. Um, because I think that the human urge to dominate and conquer and claim God's side is still alive and well in all of us as well. There is nothing exceptional about exceptionalism. And if we were to strip away our anti-racist, anti-empire correctness and stare both beasts in their many, many, many eyes, it might be worth us asking ourselves, if this whole epic story that's about lamb power versus imperial self-defying monster power isn't something that we might be caught up in too in terms of beast worship. Because the thing is that our cultural DNA, our Western, British and American cultural DNA goes a lot deeper in America's case than God bless America and nowhere else. This country is built on its own special imperial cultish language and you and I are not immune to it. It worships more and it worships free and it worships work. More land, more power, more money, more status, more profits, more square footage, more fame. And with it, freedom for me. Freedom to be me freedom to, to spend what's mine how I want to, to live how I want to, identify how I want to, my truth, my power. More, more, more. Free, free, free. Work, work, work. If you work for it, it will come to you. And you will have earned it. And it will be yours. And this is so confrontational. I cannot even tell you how hard it has been to write this talk this week. When I think about how I measure my relationship with God, his blessing, his favor, his goodness, his being on my side. And I don't want to spoil the end of the story. The lamb wins the epic battle with the dragon and his ligerish sidekicks. The slaughtered lamb sits victorious on the throne. And lamb power, it just, it just doesn't really suit us, does it? 
deep down, I think most of us prefer other pictures from Revelation, like the lion, the like roaring lion, like Jesus being that. Quite like praying to that Jesus. What about the, the, the one where he's on a horse, he's got a sword in his mouth and he's covered with the blood? Because that guy's in charge. The whole point of the story was that it's the lamb. Somehow, the way to victory is the way of the cross. Whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves, take up their cross and follow me. And it's as strange and challenging to us today as it was to anyone who's ever heard it. And I am extremely sensitive <clears throat> to this sounding like I'm trying to sell some gray, negative, small, just weak image of kingdom life. But the truth is nothing could be further from the truth. Lamb power isn't weak or impoverished. The way of the kingdom looks nothing like banal servitude, <clears throat> being small, forgotten. Jesus the Lamb looks nothing like that. Jesus the Lamb is who lived and showed us what being perfectly human looks like when it is full of love and justice and compassion. He aggressively went after societal and religious and demonic oppression. He demands justice. He cares for the poor and the downtrodden and the hurting. And he shows us how to do it. And all of this while still understanding where we are understanding the forces, the lies, the deceptions that are whispered and actually in this town so often screamed at us about what blessings should, like, what what should look like, what favor should look like, what if God's on your side, then, he, then surely he would give me some of these things. And it is booming in our ears all of the time. He knows where we live. He knows what we've been taught. And he always, always, always understands, but calls us to see him, what he's really doing, who he really is. Because individualism is an illusion. In him, we don't need to worry about our position, our validation, our, you know, whatever it is, getting the job, getting the contract, getting the deal, the thing that we've been praying for. We know that the resources are infinite. The space for us all to thrive is never-ending in Jesus. I win when you win. Imagine if any of us truly believed this. In him, we are so clear who we really are. We have so much love and grace coursing through our veins that there's no room left for what about me, what I deserve, what I'm owed, my turn. None of those things matter anymore. In him, we are so clearly and keenly aware that everything we have received is because of grace. And we never, ever, ever need to worry about that being taken advantage of. We have everything we have only because of grace. And we are given full membership in order to give to it, not take from it, in order to serve it, not be served. We share 
We show our power and ability and superiority and status by giving them away. We don't operate under the same systems of power and all of the nonsense of revering leaders and all of that stuff. Unity, that's not just about getting along. That is the Lamb's revolutionary response to inequity and prejudice. Kingdom peacemaking isn't passive. Kingdom justice flows like a mighty river. Lamb power is not weakness. It's just a whole other set of rules for life. And the lamb is always coming after those who need it. Um, I would love for the amazing musicians to come back now, please. I just, you know, this is just, it's like, every now and then we have to kind of give a talk about this stuff and it's so hard and it's so heavy and no one wants to hear it and I get it. It would be so much easier to lead a church if we truly believed that whatever, working hard or believing it in enough is how we get everything we ever want. It would, be really, it would, just, be, it would just be a lot more pleasant, wouldn't it? Um, until we realize that it's not. But what I would love to do now I, th- I mean, I think, I don't know if you were here for the whole of worship, I think we just had a very powerful time before of just worshipping the Lamb, of seeing that this thing is different, of remembering again that we're playing by different rules. And what I would really love to do, especially given those prophetic words, is invite you, particularly if you feel like, yeah, but I just need some, some lion power this morning. I need to feel like Jesus is on my side. I need answers to prayer. Um, Let's like pray for you because this because the thing is is that the the love and the grace and the power and the the worshiping the lamb together that's how we get through it and I would love to pray for really specific words the sense I had even as we were listening to the words is like prayer team let's come up and believe that we're going to hear things because even for people walking through the dark bits like specific words from God just light the path and that's what we need even when we're not getting all the answers. We need some of that stuff, so let's do it. But stand now, and let's sing for a while, and let's invite the Spirit. Let's open ourselves to this other way.